0: This morning's Old Testament reading is from Nehemiah, that's uh, just back from the middle uh, of the Bible if you're looking for it. Chapter 13, the last chapter in, in the book of Nehemiah, reading from verses 1 to 13. So Nehemiah 13, verses 1 to 13. On that day the book of Moses was read aloud in the hearing of the people, and there it was found written that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever be admitted into the assembly of God because they had not met the Israelites with food and water, but had hired Balaam to call a curse down on them. Our God, however, turned the curse into a blessing. When the people heard this law, they excluded from Israel all who were of foreign descent. Before this, Eliashib the priest had been put in charge of the storerooms of the house of our God, He was closely associated with Tobiah, and he had provided him with a large room formerly used to store the grain offerings, and incense, and temple articles, and also the tithes of grain, new wine and oil prescribed for the Levites, singers and gatekeepers, as well as the contributions for the priests. But while all this was going on, I was not in Jerusalem for in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I had returned to the king. Sometime later, I asked his permission and came back to Jerusalem. Here I learned about the evil thing Eliashib had done in providing Tobiah a room in the courts of the house of God. I was greatly displeased and threw all Tobiah's household goods out of the room. I gave orders to purify the rooms and then I put back into them the equipment of the house of God with the grain offerings and the incense. I also learned that the portions assigned to the Levites had not been given to them and that all the Levites and singers responsible for the service had gone back into their fields, back to their own fields, sorry. So I rebuked the officials and asked them, why is the house of God neglected? Then I called them together and stationed them at their posts. All Judah brought the tithes of grain, new wine, and oil into the storerooms. I put Shelemiah the priest, Zadok the scribe, and a Levite named Padaiah in charge of the storerooms and made Hanan son of Zacher, the son of Mataniah their assistant, because these men were considered trustworthy. They were made responsible for distributing the supplies to their brothers.
1: Good morning again. Um, keep the Bible open. We're looking through the rest of that chapter as well. And as you look over the, the rest of it, you'll see Nehemiah pulling out people's hair and putting guards on gates and, and so on. Let's pray, though, as we come to God's word, pray that we'll be able to make sense of it and apply it appropriately. Heavenly Father, we ask that as we humble ourselves before you this morning, we pray that you would speak to our hearts. Lord, please keep working in us, transforming and renewing us, we pray. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Yesterday was a big day. I went back to parkrun again. It's been maybe nine months. So it was long, slow, a lot of huffing and puffing. It's gonna take ages to build back up to the level of fitness that I once had. You know, the kind of Andrew Brown type level. It's gonna take ages. It's like that. It comes undone really quickly. It comes unraveled really quickly and then takes forever to build back up again. When we were at um, Bible College or Theological College in Sydney, we were warned that Christian ministry can be the same. Decades of committed Bible teaching ministry, it feels like it can come unraveled in one person's lifetime, in one generation. Um, On Tuesday night, I was over at Wavell Heights Church. We were working through in a growth group there the last little bit of Ephesians that we did at church last term. That last little bit of Ephesians where it talks about putting on the whole armor of God. So you can defend yourself against the devil's schemes and so on. It's like that, the Christian life. It's ongoing battles, it's constant effort to keep living for Jesus. It's not a case of, you know, setting cruise control and putting your feet up. Living for Jesus is a constant fight, a constant battle as we're working to the deadline. Of Jesus returning and then it all changes. God's goal is to see everything under the headship of Christ. That's what we're working to and that's the goal that we're focused on. Living by the word of our powerful God it takes constant commitment. What you see in Nehemiah 13 is what happens when you take your eye off the goal. What we have in Nehemiah chapter 13 is a messy ending another Old Testament book. Looking across the chapter, as you look through it, you'll see God's people. They've defiled the temple that they've rebuilt. They've neglected the priesthood they were supposed to support. They've misused the Sabbath day. They've intermarried with the nations. Nehemiah is there trying to sort the mess out, trying to set things right again. You remember a couple of weeks ago, as we finished the book of Ezra, it felt very much the same, didn't it? Ezra finishes on the same sort of note. In Ezra chapter 10, the people had intermingled with the nations instead of remaining holy to our God, that intermarried, taking on the culture of the others around them, immersing themselves in the world like that. And in Ezra chapter 10, a man called Shechaniah um, responded to the crisis by instigating this process of renewal of commitment to God. The action they took, though, as you look through Ezra chapter 10, you remember, you you read it and you think, hmm, is that the right thing to do? And you remember it wasn't unanimous, and clearly it didn't last, because here we are again at the end of Nehemiah. This is another messy ending in an Old Testament book. The Old Testament is full of these endings where it just goes round and round, the cycle repeats. It's a never ending story, seemingly. Look at how much the Israelites have failed to keep the promises they made. So last week, so we finished Ezra, then last week we jumped into Nehemiah chapter 8 because Ezra pops up in Nehemiah. He's a priest and he's a a teacher of God's law. And in chapter 8, there he is speaking and explaining God's law and the people responded appropriately. In chapter 9 of Nehemiah, you have this prayer of confession and, and repentance. In chapter 10, you have a whole renewal process that goes ahead. But sometime after that, and before chapter 13, everything falls apart. It's like Nehemiah turns his back and the kids get up to mischief again. You'll see in verse uh, 6 of chapter 13, Nehemiah, he's returned to the king of Babylon. Remember, he's the cupbearer? Nehemiah, the book opens with him asking for permission to go back and help rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. He's done all that, gone back to serve the king um, back in Babylon. And while he's away, it's all gone to pot. It's all come apart back in Jerusalem. So in 13 verses 1 to 3, the people, yes, they do respond to the word of God, but they need to respond to the word of God because everything's gone off track. Look at how bad it is. So 10 verse 39, as they recommit, in 10 verse 39, you read, we uh, we will not neglect the house of our God. We will not neglect the house of our God. In chapter 13 verse 11, Nehemiah says, why is the house of God neglected? It's just a complete flop. It's completely fallen apart. And you look at more detail and you'll see exactly how it's all become dismantled. So if you compare Nehemiah chapter ten, verses twenty-eight to thirty-two, I'll read some bits there. You've got chapter thirteen in front of you. Listen to the the, to the way it's all come and done. So ten verse twenty-eight. The rest of the people, priests, Levites, gatekeepers, musicians, temple servants, and all who separated themselves from the neighboring peoples for the sake of the Lord our God, together with their wives, and their sons and daughters, who are able to understand. So they've separated themselves from the nations. They've become being holy. Verse 29 of chapter 10. All those now join with their fellow Israelites and nobles and bind themselves with a curse and an oath to follow the law of God given through Moses, the servant of God, and to obey carefully all the commands and regulations, decrees of our Lord and God. They've recommitted themselves to living by the word of our powerful God, and notice the promise in 10 verse 30. We promise not to give our daughters in marriage to the peoples around or to take their daughters for our sons. In chapter 13, towards the end, you'll see they've done that. Um, verse 31 of chapter 10. When the neighboring peoples bring merchandise or grain and sell on the Sabbath, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or on any holy day. You'll see in chapter ten, uh, chapter 13, they do exactly that. And then verse 32 we of chapter 10. We assume the responsibility for carrying out the commands to give a third of a shekel each year for the service of the house of God. In chapter 13, they've completely neglected giving anything to the priests and to the house of God. The Old Testament books of Ezra and Nehemiah, this, this whole sequence of events begins with Cyrus, the king of Persia, issuing a decree to send the people of Israel back to Jerusalem to rebuild their temple. Many of them did return, it took decades to rebuild the temple but they did it. Then it took longer to rebuild the walls but they did it. And now and and then the people of God were taught the word of God, the law of God. Reformation happened in their lives it seemed, but now here in chapter 13 it's all become unraveled completely. The complete undoing of all Nehemiah's hard work at reforming God's people. It is kind of it's underlined for us by the reappearance of two characters who you saw in the opening chapters of Nehemiah. Um, Sambalat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite, they're back. And you'll read in chapter 13, Eliashib the high priest is inviting them in to be part of the place. So, back in, um, so Tobiah the, the Ammonite, he's now moved into the temple in the passage that was read for us. Um, 13 verse 4, Elisha, the high priest, gave Tobiah the room that was reserved for storing up the sacrifices and the tithes and other things for the temple. You don't need that room when you're not collecting any tithes, do you? And so the high priest gives it over to Tobiah, the Ammonite, for him to live there. Back in chapter 2, Tobiah offered to help rebuild the walls and Nehemiah shut him down firmly. In chapter 4, Tobiah was there again mocking the rebuilding efforts. In chapter 6, Tobiah is still at it. And now by chapter 13, Tobiah is living in the temple. You can see how completely undone things are. sambalat he's back as well. Um, in 13 verse 28, Elisha, the same high priest, has allowed his son to marry Sambalat's daughter. Sanballat, the the Horonite, was with Tobiah back in chapter 2 and again with him in chapter 4, mocking the efforts at rebuilding the wall. And now here he is, part of the family of the high priest. Nehemiah chapter 13, yeah, from what I've shown you, it is a very messy ending. Nehemiah is seeing all his hard work go to waste. Neither, The truth of it, as we look at it and we can see, neither Ezra nor Nehemiah could change people's hearts. As Christians, we know it's only Jesus who can change anybody's heart. But in Nehemiah chapter 13, Nehemiah did all that he humanly could. Um, Ezra in chapter 10 of Ezra, so Ezra chapter 10, his approach was different to Nehemiah's. Ezra's approach when he saw what the people were up to was he lamented. He pulled his own hair out, lamented until the people came to him and together they worked out a plan. Nehemiah, he's more proactive. He gets in there physically and enforces compliance with God's law. So as you look across the passage, 13 verses 8 to 9, Nehemiah is there physically... He throws out Tobiah's household belongings out of the temple, turfs him onto the pavement, basically. Um, 13 verses 10 to 13, Nehemiah, he enforced the collection of tithes to look after the Levites. In verses 15 to 22, he enforces Sabbath observance. He puts guards on the gates to keep them shut, warns the traders from the walls, don't hang around until these gates open. In chapter 13, verses 23 to 28, he humiliated those who had intermarried. And in thirteen verse thirty, he purified the priesthood. Could anyone do any more than Nehemiah did? And as you read it, you're left with questions, aren't you? Just like you did with Ezra, Ezra's reforms at the end of chapter of Ezra, at the end of that book. You look at what Ezra and and the others did. You think, was that was that the best thing to do? You're left with those same questions here. To the point that we'll even disagree among ourselves. If you were here at the start of church, you might have disagreed with the way that. Steve introduced the passage. Because here you see Nehemiah's zeal. Isn't that a good thing? Nehemiah, was he misguided though? Does forcing outward observance, does that satisfy God's law? Is physical aggression and force, is it actually going to fix the problem? I mean, what happens when the guards stand down from the walls? Won't the people just return to what they were doing? We've got all these questions. Why did he do it that way? Ezra chapter 10 Um, Ezra took the approach of um, repentance-led change, I suppose you could call it. Here in Nehemiah 13, Nehemiah takes the approach of a full-on aggressive physical approach. But neither lasted. Neither worked. And I think that's Ezra and Nehemiah together. I think he meant to see that. The reality is neither Ezra nor Nehemiah could change people's hearts. We know that. As New Testament Christians, we know that only Jesus can change human hearts. Um, in Hebrews, Hebrews is uh, it's a fairly long book of the Bible. He calls it short at the end. It's like a sermon that does loops. As you go through Hebrews chapters eight to ten, the writer to the Hebrews quotes Jeremiah two times. And in quoting Jeremiah, he says, "This is the covenant I'll make with them after that time," says the Lord, "I will put my laws in their hearts, and I'll write it on their heart, on their minds." It's it's Jeremiah the prophet promising a day when God will fix this mess that you see in Ezra and Nehemiah, this problem of sin, when God will get in there and change people's hearts, make people understand how to live for him and know how to live for him. Jeremiah looked forward to a time when God would deal with sin. And the writer of Hebrews is saying, Jesus has now done that. So don't go back to the old way of doing things. Jesus has come. He's dealt with sin. He's at work in your hearts. There's only one man who can deal with the problem of sin, and that's Jesus. Each of us needs to throw ourselves at the mercy of God, ask God for forgiveness, and trust that God will be at work in us. And so the prophet Jeremiah looked forward to this day that would come. Now, Ezra and Nehemiah, they didn't see that day arrive, but they knew it was coming. Here's how I know it. Look back at the beginning of Ezra chapter 1. Ezra chapter 1 goes, The first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah, the Lord moved in the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia, to make a proclamation. Ezra and Nehemiah, it's like the one unfolding story. Ezra opens by saying the words of of Jeremiah the prophet. They're happening. I'm sure Ezra and Nehemiah knew there was a day promised when God would change people's hearts. But they just didn't see it in their lifetime. Ezra Ezra and Nehemiah, they saw some of what Jeremiah promised, but not all. And yet they kept trusting that God would be at work. Ezra and Nehemiah, they joined so many of the other Old Testament or Old Covenant people, putting their faith in God, living for God with all that they could see in front of them, and trusting that in God's timing and in God's purposes, it will all work out. That uh, faith and that hope that they had, I think that's what sits behind this earnest plea that you hear from Nehemiah three times in chapter 13. Nehemiah, he calls out to God, remember me. Here he is trying to live for God in this messy situation, calling out to God, remember me. So you see it in verse 14, you see it towards the end of verse 22, and you see it again in verses 29 to 31. It's an echo of what you hear Nehemiah say back in chapter 5, and we've looked at it in growth groups. As we went through growth groups, it was a bit of a tricky question, this one. You know, what's Nehemiah mean when he says, remember me? In Romans 4, I know we're jumping around a little bit, but in Romans 4, which we'll come to in a few weeks' time, in Romans 4, we're told that Abraham was saved by faith. He was saved by trusting in God. This is Abraham, the beginning of the nation of Israel. He's saved by faith, not by law. The law, in fact, came after the promise that was given to Abraham. In Romans 4, we're told that we, that we are Abraham's descendants if we have the same faith that he had. And you think about the faith of Abraham. Abraham was even prepared to obey God's commands when it meant the possibility of sacrificing his son Isaac. He was willing to obey. God spared him having to do that, and he spared Isaac that as well by providing a lamb. But God's now offered his son to deal with sin. Ezra and Nehemiah, um, they're not listed in the list of faithful people in Hebrews 11, but they live like the people listed in Hebrews 11. The people of the old covenant who trusted in God like Abraham and did what they thought God wanted them to do with what they knew in front of them. The writer of the Hebrews claims that those old covenant faithfuls were in fact trusting in Jesus. Jesus. By trusting in God, they were relying on Jesus' death that would come. They were made righteous through Jesus' death that would come because it's only Jesus who can deal with sin. And so Hebrews 11 ends like this in verse 39. These were all, all these people it's listed off, these were all commended for their faith, yet not one of them received what had been promised since God had planned something better for us so that only together with us would they be made perfect. Even Old Testament People who trusted in God are saved through Jesus. And so with all that background, have a look at Nehemiah's Please Remember Me. Have a look at verse 14. He goes, remember me for this, my God, and do not blot out what I have so faithfully done for the house of my God and its services. You can hear the cry, can't you? He's done all this work for his people, God's people, to make them live for God. He's done everything he can, and he cries out to God, remember me. He can see that it's not working. He knows it's not fixing the problem, and so he calls out to God. Or again, in verse 22, he goes, Remember me for this also, my God, and show mercy to me according to your great love. Crying out to God to be merciful to him. He's done everything he can. Or again, the way the book closes in verse 30, second half of the verse, Remember me with favor, oh my God. And so the book of Nehemiah ends with Nehemiah throwing himself at God's mercy. And with us, knowing that everything Nehemiah has done isn't fixing the problem of sin. It's still there. Nehemiah knew that Jeremiah had promised a day that would come when God would deal with hearts, and that day hadn't yet come. But hundreds of years later, when Jesus hung on a cross with a criminal on either side, one criminal, criminal mocked Jesus, And the other one says, don't you fear God? Since you are under the same sentence, we are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. And then he said to Jesus, remember me when you come into my kingdom. You can hear the same plea, can't you, as Nehemiah? I've done everything. Remember me. It's like, don't give me what I deserve. Remember me, be merciful to me. And then Jesus says to that criminal, truly, I tell you today, you'll be with me in paradise. Was that the last old covenant believer in God? Or was it the first new covenant believer in God? Or does it matter? Either way, they were trusting in Jesus, weren't they? They were trusting in God to provide a way out. So you look at this chapter of Nehemiah and Nehemiah shows us another messy ending. Neither Ezra nor Nehemiah could change people's hearts. Only Jesus can do that. What else can we learn though as we look back with that New Testament perspective? What else can we learn looking at these old covenant people striving to live by the word of God? I'll keep it to four things because people say sermon outlines always have three so I'll make it four. I reckon as you look at this chapter beware of loving the world more than loving God. I mean, you look at the way that people just keep getting pulled back into the world. They're being told by God to be holy, to be set apart, to be people who belong to God. And they just keep slipping back into the ways of the nations around who are not serving God and have no interest in serving God. So beware of loving the world more than loving God. The second thing I think we can learn is never underestimate our capacity to sin. One of the saddest things in Nehemiah 13, I reckon, is to see how quickly everything that Nehemiah had worked for just came unravelled, fell apart. Godliness, it's like fitness. It's harder to build it up and it's easier to cut it down. Quickly lost, slowly gained. Repentance and renewal are slow work, very quickly undone by giving in to temptation. Churches, I mean, as in not buildings, but communities of Christians, it's like that building up a bible teaching church takes years and years and then it can be destroyed in a horrible congregational meeting it's just the way these things work godly marriages same thing nehemiah 13 it's a sobering chapter because it shows us the capacity that we have to sin so beware of loving the world more than god that's number one number two don't ever underestimate our capacity to sin Thirdly, I reckon, this. just don't rely on your own strength to deal with sin. You know you can't do it. And Ezra and Nehemiah have showed you that humans cannot fix it. We can only trust in God. And even and in Jesus' death in our place, and even in a, in a Bible-teaching church, we have this problem as well of underestimating or um, relying on our own ability to deal with sin. Don't let pride get at you that way. Keep trusting in Jesus and in him alone. Beware of loving the world more than God. Don't underestimate our capacity to sin. Don't rely on your own strength to deal with sin. It doesn't work. And fourthly, thank God for Jesus. And the simplest way to do that, I think, is to pray. Let's pray together. Father God, we know that we're not worthy of being called your children. And we're sorry. We're sorry for loving the world more than you. We're sorry for ignoring you. We're sorry for the way that we get into hard-hearted patterns of disobeying you. Lord, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for giving your son for us. Thank you for his death in our place. Thank you for the way that you've now exalted him as ruler over everything. Lord, please forgive us. Please be at work in our hearts changing us to live for you. And Lord, we pray that we would actually find Nehemiah 13 an encouragement to keep trusting you and keep living for you. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.